We're going to continue in a series that we've been doing, and I'll connect it to Father's Day. I think you'll see the connection in a moment. But we've been walking through the book of Colossians. And so it's a book in the New Testament. It's a very small book. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote it to a church in Colossae. It's a wonderful book. There's a lot of things that he wrote in it, but one of the things that he wrote and the purpose of his writing it was he had a lot of issues that were happening in the early church. This very young church was struggling with something called heresy. Now, if you hear that word, some people know what it means. Some people don't know what it means. And so heresy is like it's deviating from the faith. It's moving away from what the real faith is supposed to be, and that becomes sometimes the truth for the church. They begin to make truth something that wasn't intended to be truth. And so Paul is addressing some serious issues. Now, one of the issues that uh, most scholars think that Paul was addressing was something called Gnosticism. Now, again, you don't need to know that. If you want to Google that later just for fun, you'd like stuff like that, go ahead. But what Gnosticism was, was the idea that people could, through secret knowledge, gain a relationship with God. And that that secret knowledge was held by a specific group of people. And they had this secret. They had different secrets about the name of God. They had different secrets about how people's spiritual lives worked in comparison to their flesh. Gnostics believed that flesh is bad and spiritual stuff is good. And they had all these rules and things around it that were secret knowledge that you only got to be a part of if you're part of their secret group. And so as Paul's writing them, he knows that this stuff is happening inside the early church. The early church is really trying to fight against this. And so that's why we call today's message, Embracing Mystical Knowledge Not Rooted in Christ, is the colossal mistake. And it's still true of us in the church. There's times that we begin to embrace knowledge that we think is mystical, it's spiritual, it seems right to us, but it's not rooted in real Christian faith. And this is what was concerning Paul when he was writing. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up. We're going to be in Colossians. We're going to start chapter 2, which is part of a reading plan. We're just looking at the first five verses of this book. It's also in your notes and should be on the screen behind me. But listen to what the apostle said to this young church. He said, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not met me personally, my purpose is that they would be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom all hit are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith is in Christ, or how firm your faith in Christ is. So here's one of the biggest things I think when you're looking at this passage that I think is something that we can take from it today. It's something they were taking from it then. And I think is definitely on the heart of the apostle is that lead sheep share the shepherd's burden. Lead sheep share the shepherd's burden. And so when you look at this, this word that Paul's digging into, he says, my heart's burdened for you. It aches for you. There's something about the church that's burdening him. It's got him heavy, and he's concerned about the church. And the shepherd's heart's burdened for those sheep. Now, I remember uh, when I was watching one of my pastors one time do a children's message. Anybody ever seen one of those? You know, he bring the kids up right before you dismiss them sometimes at children's church, and they'll do a mini message. It's a really cool thing. Some churches still do it. We actually started out doing that. And they were doing the children's message, and they were trying to help the children understand the concept of a shepherd. 
And as you know, the word pastor means shepherd, and Jesus is the great shepherd. He's the shepherd of the church. And so, you know, with that, and, you know, we've got all you, and you guys are all the sheep. He goes, so what's that make me as your pastor? And one of the kids said, he said, yes, Johnny, what's it make you? He said, what makes the pastor the sheepdog, right? That's what it makes the pastor is the sheepdog. And, you know, it's a little confusing because the word pastor actually comes from the, the derivative of shepherd. But, you know, when we start to think about it, those titles sometimes can get confusing, can't they? Bishop, pastor, reverend. I don't like any of them, to be honest with you. And I was hanging out with my friend John. We had to do, do some bike rides. He went further than I did yesterday, but we did some long bike riding yesterday. And on one of those bike rides previous to that, we were talking about this topic. And my brother said, you know, so I've really struggled with this idea. You know, are we the sheepdog? Are we supposed to herd them up and send them that way, you know? And John says, you know, the better picture that's there, and it's really perfect, is if you begin to look at the way shepherds work, they had one sheep or ram at times that they would tie a bell around their neck. Did you know that? And the bell was there because that was the lead sheep or the ram that the other sheep would follow. And I think one of the things when you start to look at this, when you start to dig at this, is you begin to understand that Paul's burden wasn't just as a leader. Paul's burden was not just as an apostle. His burden was he was a sheep himself, but he was a lead sheep. And the reason we wear that bell is for a lot of different reasons. Listen to this. I was looking at this, and I'm not into animal husbandry, okay, Jake, just like you're not into building decks, that's, this is not my thing, it's animal husbandry, you know, that's Brittany's thing, she knows all about the farm animals, but I was reading on it, I was researching, listen to what some of the reasons they give, shepherds, real life shepherds give for having a lead sheep with a bell, it's to facilitate locating the herd, listening for the sound of the bell saves them time and tracking them down, so in other words, if all the sheep are really following the lead shepherd, who's supposed to be following the shepherd, right, then it makes it a lot quicker when they can hear the bell, and they can find the right herd. It, yeah, get a bell for me. I need a bell. You know, that was awesome. Yeah, get me a bell. But get me a cool one. You know, like we'll talk about that later. It was also to provide assurance that they are still where they're supposed to be. So like if the shepherd couldn't see them, they were out of sight. They could hear that they were still in the same place. It was to give warning of charging rams. In other words, not all of the lead sheep are good lead sheep. That's interesting to me. And one of the ones that sometimes was temperamental, a little off the rocker, when they would hear them start to charge based on the sound of the bell, they put those sheep down. Praise the Lord, all right? It was to give alert if you heard flocks that were startled. So in other words, if certain wolves started coming, if certain animals started encroaching in on the sheep, the sheep would start to make noise, they would run around, and they would hear that bell, and the shepherd would know there's something up. And it was used to report also the predators, obviously. So when I thought about that, I'm like, that is such a better picture. I don't know if that's, oh, you did all that research, John. But as I meditated on it, I was like, this is such a good picture. And when you think about the Apostle Paul, I believe this was his burden. I think he had caught the shepherd's heart. And as he caught the shepherd's heart as one of those lead sheep, he wanted the sheep to follow correctly. Listen to, um, I love this out of different translations. When you look at them, this one's out of the New Living. It says, I want you to know how much I have agonized for you. That's how the New Living renders this. That there's this deep burden. And I think the burden was he was concerned that those sheep would be pulled away into another flock altogether. That they would be pulled away from the shepherd. And that shepherd's Jesus. And they were concerned that that would happen. That's why I love it in verse 2. He says, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love 
so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. You see what Paul's been doing in this book, right? He's like, you keep getting pulled over here for something, and I just keep trying to pull you back to it's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. And he had this burden. He knew they were getting drawn away. He knew they were being pulled, and his heart ached for it. I can't imagine, because he was at such a distance, to have his heart aching that way. In any good lead sheep, whether they're a leader in the church, a pastor in the church, a deacon in the church, a Sunday school leader in the church, a small group leader, anyone that's a leader in the church, their heart ought to ache for the sheep. That they would never be pulled away into something that's not really of the faith altogether. So let me talk about this burden a little bit more. Two pieces of this burden. The burden is that sheep are not deceived was the part that really got Paul. He knew that it was so easy for sheep to be deceived. He knew that. That's why in verse 4 he says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. You ever heard this phrase, knowledge is... Did you know it came from a Muslim origin? Curious. It came from that area of the world and got translated into English literature later. And it was the idea that if you knew something and you knew something different than other people, then you could hold that something, whatever it was, as power over another group of people. And that this happens not only in work and in culture, but it definitely happens inside the church sometimes, doesn't it? I was hanging out and was talking with a lady one day, and she came from a very different denominational background, and we were just talking about her faith and different components. And she was telling me at their church it was a normal practice that you had to yell to get God's attention and sometimes bark. I think I've shared this with some of you. And every time I thought of that, I just kind of think of, you ever walk by a church, you know, when you're a kid, and you get to hear kind of what's going on, but you don't go in? Can you imagine what that church was like? It was like the pound. I mean, it was just interesting as people walk by. And, and she believed, I've got to get God's attention. She had been taught this by her lead sheep. That they had taught her that to get that healing, to get that thing that God, you want God to do in your life, you've got to get his attention. You've got to invoke his name. And sometimes you just got to bark and yell and scream and do anything you can to bring God from there to here. And then you and I listen to that. We're like, is that right? Is that wrong? How do you know? It's so easy to be deceived. And so I tell you this so that no one may deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. They might tickle something inside of you. Maybe you're one of those people, you're desperate for healing right now, and that would really tickle something inside of you. You know, maybe you're someone, you've lost someone, and you've got a Mormon missionary that knocks on your door and says, did you know you could be baptized in their name for the dead and actually get them into heaven? And that sounds really good when you're grieving the loss of someone who's very dear to you, and you're not sure did they go to heaven. These fine-sounding arguments that are sculpted around, they become secret wisdom. You only get to them if you're in the club, you're in on this group of people. And that's what Gnosticism was. And I think it's alive and well today here in our world. So let me ask you a question, because this is one of the things I've begun to understand. How much time do you spend and I spend learning the world's wisdom versus God's wisdom? Because this is the key, is knowing what God's wisdom is. Because I guarantee you the world's wisdom is all around us. When Sue and I were living in California, it was a season of my life. I was trying to figure out everything. Uh, the Navy kind of mixed a little bit of that up. You know, I thought I'd go in the Navy so I wouldn't get in the party scene. I didn't know the party scene was in the Navy, too. So it didn't take me long to find it. And yeah, uh-huh. I thought I'd go, I wasn't going to go to college because I'd burn out partying and then waste a lot of money. So I, I didn't waste money in the Navy, but there was another problem there. And so while we were there, we were just 
trying to figure our life out. It's an interesting season of life, isn't it? That kind of you graduate, you haven't had kids yet, maybe you're married, but you're just not sure about a lot in life. And so we were mulling over some stuff. And I remember I was mulling over a lot of things, including spiritual things. And I've got family, actually, that's in the Mormon church. And when they learned that I was mulling over spiritual things, next thing I know, I not came to our door, and we had Mormon missionaries that were visiting our home. And there were some really interesting arguments that began to be brought up. You know, could Jesus, after his resurrection, have gone to other places in the world? Could he? Would he? These are interesting arguments to be brought up. You know, would he have given another testimony to a different group of people, wanting them to hear the good news? These are interesting arguments that are brought up at the very onset. And, if you, and I was not grounded in my Bible at the time, and I did not know how to answer those questions. And if you're not, this is what Paul was concerned about. If you're not grounded spiritually and in Scripture, it's so easy to be deceived. If you're wondering about those answers, the answer is no. When Jesus rose from the dead, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, okay? His purpose was to equip and send the church to share that good news. And that's very clear in all of the Gospels. You know, the reality is, is yes, he cares about the world. But he's going to spread that word through the church. And so I didn't know these arguments. It was, it was, we were, I was a breath away from finding myself in a secret society that only gave you certain knowledge as you got further and further and further in. And by the way, Mormons convert more Christians than any other people group. And they do it because they don't know the word. The parable of the sower came to mind as I was thinking about this week, you know, when Jesus puts that seed out and he says there's some that's fertile soil and there's some that's thorny. Here's the reality. The soil is something that can be cultivated. It can be tilled. But you and I get to do the work of that. He's the one chunking seed. Other people are going to water it. But you and I need to make sure that we're cultivating and tilling that soil. And that's why we need to not be deceived because we are in a culture that wants to deceive us in so many ways. Let me give you a couple other ways that maybe are a little bit more at home than maybe different religions. Think about the first deception. If you're reading the Bible, some of you started reading Genesis. You're like, wow, that thing is wild. And I'm like, yeah, it's wild. And the very first deception, what was the deception? First man, a first woman, they're hanging out. Man, they're naked. They don't even know they're naked, and things are good. I mean, just that alone shouldn't set your mind at that, right? And it's just good. Marriage is good. Life is good. All is good. They have a perfect relationship with God. They can talk to God face to face. And then the great deceiver comes into the situation. God had only given one rule. John, what's the rule? Don't eat from this one tree, which is the knowledge of good and evil, right? And he says, the day that you eat of this, surely you will die. In fact, in the original language, he says, die, die. He says, double death, which means he meant a spiritual and physical death that would happen. That's the only rule. And they come to this moment, and the great deceiver's there, and he's talking to the wife, and he's just hammering her away with this thing. And he's really good. He doesn't just give you an outright lie. He just tweaks a component of truth. Will you really die, or will your eyes be opened, and will you be like God? And Eve takes of the fruit, and then she turns to her husband, who was standing there the whole time like a bump on a log, who never said anything, right? And sin comes into the world. Now, whether you believe this is metaphor or real, I think the truth is actually in it, which is we have ever since that moment been shirking our roles and responsibilities, and when we do this, We cannot receive God's blessing. The definition of marriage has been attacked. 
Let me go even further than just the definition of marriage. It's not just a contract. It's a covenant. A covenant's an agreement in how the roles are to work. And based on when you live within those roles and those parameters, God agrees to bring blessing. Right? It's not a legal contract. And when we begin to think about this, this works in so many different ways. There are married people who have the contract, but you've never really entered into the covenant. How can you expect God's blessing? There are people that they've got the contract, but they don't even understand God's definition of one man, one woman in covenant marriage for life. And again, whenever we begin to deviate from this, we're entering into this subtle deception. And as you begin to enter into this subtle deception, God will not bring his full blessing to bear. And so I ask you, how much do you understand the role of husband? How much do you understand the role of wife and the beautiful nature of it? One of the things we were talking about with the um, worship team, because we like to do a devotion right before we begin, um, you guys getting here and actually start the service, was I was thinking about this with them, and I was just thinking about the concept of how eroded this has happened in marriages And one of the things that I think is the world has definitely attacked the definition of marriage. This is true, and it's caused deception. But let me tell you the church's role in this, and it's hard. Here's where we've messed up. People should look at Christian marriages and go, man, I want that. The way he loves her, I want a marriage like that. The way she respects and honors her husband, I want a marriage like that. They ought to look at our marriages within the church and go, I don't get it, I don't understand it, but I want that. That's our failure. Because we should have made marriage so attractive that all the world would look at it and go, yeah, I don't understand all the pieces, but I know I want that. And that's our failure. The world's failure is Satan just says, here's a little tweak, here's a little deception. It happens all the time. But our failure is we've not elevated marriage to the place it should be. That people should look at it and husbands should live in that covenant with their wives to love their wife that way. And and wives should live with their husbands in a way that says, I want that man to lead my home. And when we've shirked that, we've not allowed God's blessing. The third thing I think was aching in his heart, in the apostle's heart, was that he knew this. He knew that people that were in the church and people that would get into this burden, that the burden that he had for these sheep specifically was that they would be disciplined and faithful. They wouldn't be deceived but that they would also be disciplined and that you and I would be faithful. He says in verse five, for though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith is in Christ. And that's pretty cool. That's disciplined and that's faithful. When you become a Christian, one of the things that should happen in your life and should happen in mine is we no longer live for ourselves. You know that? We no longer live for our wants, our desires, our joys. There's this transition, this process that begins to happen where really what you want is everything for God, God's honor, God's glory, God's fame, that Jesus would be the most well-known person. The greatest thing could ever be said at your funeral and mine was, I don't know much about them, but I know they love Jesus. That When you get that kind of thing, there's a disciplined and faithful dynamic to it. And this happens for you and I through a daily practice that sometimes we forget is so important. That's that daily quiet time with God. That we have that quiet time, that we read God's word every day, and that we pray. And we say, God, show me your heart for my life, but also how I might glorify you today. And when we have this, it begins to change us. Here's here's the way this should work. God's truth should change us. We should never change God's truth. 
And that's the biggest attack right now in our culture right now in the church. We want to change God's truth, don't we? Because it's not convenient. I don't like it. It seems harsh at times. But the moment I try to change his truth instead of letting his truth change me, this is when this deception begins to creep in. Let me give you one that's, again, just keeping it real with you. And this may hit you hard where you are. That's not my goal. I'm just trying to give you my understanding of the breadth of God's truth. The whole idea of the transgender movement. You know, there's a psychologist at Johns Hopkins. That's a good school, isn't it? There's a guy over here who should raise his hand. That's a good school, right? Johns Hopkins. Over 127 peer-reviewed articles. 27 books published in the area of psychiatry. He was the head of psychiatry for this particular hospital for years. And in his study of this particular issue, he said that transgenderism is a mental illness equivocated with bulimia and anorexia. That when people sometimes see themselves, they get confused when they see themselves and in their own identity of who they are. And in his own research, this is scholarly researched, that's been looked into, peer-reviewed, he said, we need to not help by helping these people go through a sex change. We need to help them to discover their true identity. This is not a Christian. This is a psychiatrist. This is someone who's just looking at the issue and keeping it real. He's finding the truth that's there. But in our culture, which is so centered on individual rights, and that you can define yourself however you want to define yourself outside of the truth of God, we're willing to accept crazy stuff like that. And now we found out people are getting fired for using the wrong pronoun for certain people with jobs. This is the reality of the world we live in. And Paul was looking at this in the early church, and he said, you're not disciplined, you're not faithful, and you're being deceived, and we need to stop doing this. We need to stop being deceived in our church. His name's Dr. Paul McHugh. If you're curious, and if I have your email, I'm going to send you the article that he wrote up, because this is real. And this goes all the way back to the garden. Did God really say? Did God really say that? And you and I need to know, what did God really say? So let me ask you a question. Are you disciplined? Do you have a daily quiet time with God? Have you been doing the reading plan that's at the Welcome Center? Do you share the reading plan with other people? Do you talk and dialogue about these issues? Because I know in our world it's difficult to do. So this week, let me give you a challenge, and then I want to give the guys a very specific challenge that I think is connected to the heart of this message for Father's Day and being a man. So this week I'm asking you, devote yourself to the discovery of Christ's mystery. Not the world's mystery, not some issue of sexuality, not some issue of politics, but you would discover for yourself the heart of Christ's mystery in the scriptures. And this requires leadership. When I was thinking about this, I looked again at the message. The message is such a cool paraphrase. And I was looking at Proverbs 5, if you want to write this down on the side, uh, starting in 17, because Eugene Peterson, when he paraphrases, he gives whole chunks of Scripture, not just verse by verse. But starting around Proverbs 5, 17, listen to what he says about this proverb. He says, your spring water is for you and you only. He's talking about marriage. Watch this. Not to be passed around among strangers. Bless your fresh-flowing fountain. And yeah, read the Bible. It's awesome. Enjoy the wife you married as a young man, lovely as an angel, beautiful as a rose. Don't ever quit taking delight in her body. Never take her love for granted. Well, that's a cool paraphrase. There's the truth of scripture for you. Here's the truth of scripture. Christians can't grow out of love. They grow deeper into it. 
because you begin to understand the beauty of this, the roles and the beauty of the arrangement. And here's where I believe the failure is in our culture, and I'm going to call you to task today, men. Whether you're married or one day you're hoping to live in a covenant marriage like we described this morning. I'm going to call you to task. Ephesians 5.25 says this. It says to the men, love your wife the way Christ loves his church, willing to lay down his very life for her. I think that's significant. Let me tell you why. Because I think what the apostle was calling us to was to not to succumb to the original fall. Adam sat there like a bump on a log. And he's saying, husbands, lead. Love your wife that way. Be the first one to tell her how beautiful she still is. Be the first one that still seeks her affection. Be the one that wants to draw her into a deeper relationship with the Savior every day of your life. Hold marriage up as the most honorable estate that could happen. And so I think this is what's missing. And I think this is the starting point if you really want to see your family made whole is that men have to step up and lead. And I've been blessed. I just want to tell you, is I have a wife that encourages me to lead, asks me to lead, supports me to lead, even when I don't want to lead. <laughs> Some of you can relate to this, right? And I just want to be left alone. Men, can, can we talk? I just want some downtime in an encouraging, loving, spiritual, mature way. She draws me to be a better man and a better leader. That's the kind of role we need in in women in our relationships. And men need to stop just sitting around not speaking God's word into their marriages and speaking God's word in their families. They need to step up. So ask the band to come and get ready to lead us in a song. And as they come, I want to ask you a question uh, for all the fathers, but we also did this for all the men that are here today that want to live one day in a really good covenant marriage we got a really cool gift. Bonnie found this gift, actually. It came through the church one day, and it was so good. And it's a, it's a, it's a knife. And on the knife, it says, man of God. And it's got, like, all kinds of cool gadgets like any guy should have, right? We should have made you put those three-inch screws with this little thing. But that would have been really bad. That would have taken a long time. But I'm going to ask you to do something. Some of you are physically able to do this, and some of you aren't. If you're not physically able, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand or stand where you are. I'm going to ask you to overcome the original sin by the power of Christ in you. The original sin was you and I sat there when we could have stood, when we could have stepped forward. And in stepping forward, we could have said, that's not what God said. What God said was, surely we'll die that day, and I want to save my family from that pain and that sin. So I'm going to ask you, if you want to live in a covenant relationship, in a biblical union, if you want to live in such a way that not only honors God, but removes the original curse because of what Christ has already done, he's already done the work, all we've got to do is stand, would you come forward and get one? For me to hand it to you is too passive. Because I believe if you sit where you are, you're going to recommit the original sin. And so as the song is played, I want you to come. If you can't physically come, because I know some of you are there, you just raise your hand or stand where you are, and one of these gentlemen will bring this knife to you. But listen to this song and think about our response as men. Would you stay up here in front? Would you come? 
All I got to say is that's the proudest Father's Day I've ever had to see all of you standing here. If there's someone that wasn't able to stand, I want to make sure I get you a knife. Is there anybody that still needed one because of a physical infirmity? I want to make sure that somebody, did everybody get them? Okay. I want to pray over you. And I want to, when you're leaving, here's what I want you to be thinking about. Your desires, your thoughts, everything about your life no longer belongs to you. It belongs to Christ. And as it belongs to Christ, your role is to draw every single person in your family closer to him, whatever that takes. Amen? Your grandkids, your kids, your spouses, everybody. So let's pray over you and pray a blessing of God in your life. Amen? God, I pray for these men. I'm thankful for them, for each and every one of them. Lord, we recognize that in the garden, we blew it. But we thank you we have a perfect representation in Christ who did not blow it. He went all the way to the cross, not actually leaning into what he wanted, but what the Father wanted, which brought us our salvation. God, for these men, I pray that that same reality and truth would be in their homes and in their heart. That every decision they would make, every thought they would hold captive and say, does this honor Christ and what he's done for me? And does this draw my wife closer to him or does it push her further away? Does it draw my kids closer to him or push them further away? My grandkids. That they would be the men of God that will transform the world because people will look into their lives and look into their marriages and look into who they are and say, I want a life like that because there's something unique and special and amazing. God, let your glory shine through each of these men. And because of that, may they receive your blessing tenfold over so they can pass it on to others. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Thank you, guys. You can have a seat.